CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 6 European Union and Popular Myth Part 2 with Professor Thomas Dietz Hello and welcome to the second part of this episode of CEE on the European Union and popular myth. My name is Sebastian Schaeffer. I'm the Managing Director at the Institute for the Danube Region in Central Europe. I am again today very happy to welcome Thomas Dietz, who is a Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Tübingen. Thomas, welcome and thank you for joining us again. Hello, Sebastian. So in the last episode, we focused on drivers of popular myth in the European Union. Today, I would like to bring the focus on our region and discuss more closely about the impact of those myths and the consequences that they have on the Central and Southeast European region. To start with, could you explain us a little bit more from where we left off in the last episode? You mentioned this imagination of the nation. It seems to be something that is especially important in the Central an Eastern European region, um, as they have not experienced the same European integration processes as the Western European countries, maybe. And so the nation seems to be rather more important still at the moment, um, as it is in, in countries that have been a member of the EU for a longer time. Do you think that is true? And do you think um, that, that uh, this has an impact on how the so to say, newer member states behave at the moment in the European integration process? First of all, I should say that before I say anything about the Central Eastern European states, that we do have um, problems of nationalism and populism uh, in the other member states as well. We have that to different degrees. Uh, we do have these issues uh, left and right. And um, I think what unites all of these uh, phenomena is a desire to find some grounding, some simplicity uh, in, in, a, in a world that is extremely complex and where uh, decision-making has become uh, very difficult and where um, an individual citizen finds it extremely difficult um, to place him or herself. There is a concept in the literature that is called ontological security. You feel secure uh, if you uh, know your presence, if you know your place. People are no longer ontologically secure, or many are not, uh, in the light of uh, a lot of challenges. So this has uh, meant that there is a rise of simple solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the ironies, of course, that people perhaps sense or know that those simple solutions will not be so simple after all. Uh, but the promise of those simple solutions is sort of a straw that people grab in trying to um, find an answer to the challenges of today. And these challenges are there East and West. Um, and in many ways, one could possibly argue that in Central and Eastern European states, uh, these challenges may even be worse, 
not because they haven't been part of the European integration process. Um, I don't think that being part of the integration process makes you in any way immune to these uh, challenges, but rather because of course the transformation for them, uh, the challenges for them after uh, the end of the Cold War were a lot greater than for those who were already a part of the EU. And even though I have no sympathies whatsoever with the Orbans of this world, I should also perhaps say that uh, the way that uh, enlargement was conceived of uh, in the West, uh, i.e. in the existing EU15 at the time, was a bizarre kind of uh, understanding of uh, a theory called social constructivism, which rested on the idea of socialization by uh, those new EU member states, by virtue of now being EU member states, would be socialized into the ways in which the existing EU would work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that completely ignored, firstly, that of course there were diverse processes in the West already then. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, some of us may remember uh, when the FPÖ first uh, came to power in Austria, um, uh, the, 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 the massive disputes then, um, I mean, these are kind of things that are written out of our own memory. Um, and so the idea is that there is a unified sort of normative structure that is imposed on those Central Eastern European states, and they will surely change over time. And it ignores, on the other hand, also that, of course, uh, if you bring in a hell of a lot of new members, uh, that they also have socializing effects on the rest. Um, So it's a give and take. It's not a a one-way process. Mm -hmm. So the challenges, I think, for those states were much greater. The uncertainties, the ways in which things now seem to be done differently, those who profit and those who don't. I mean, these are very different from, uh, say, Germany uh, as a big member state with uh, uh, the possibility economically to dominate a lot of the market, where, you know, expanding the EU market didn't really challenge the heart of uh, a lot of what Western Germany before that was. And, you know, that's where these issues, I think, um, are largely coming from. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking in the last episode about myth and the myth that are present are currently, at least I have the feeling, laying grounds for turning into these conspiracy theories. So a Euroscepticism that we see in certain countries is based again on some sort of myth that they also exploit. But we see a radicalization of these kind of myths, so to say, that turn into something like the EU or other international organizations are funding to undermine the core values of our nation state. There are forces at play that want to destroy the Christian heritage of our country, etc., etc. So when we look at this, is this a development because this is very dangerous or is this is this not at all connected and is there is there something else that underlies this development that we are currently seeing 
mean, the myths that we talked about last week, I'm not sure how present uh, they are uh, mm. still in these debates. Uh, so um, uh, the cucumbers, I don't think, play a role in Hungary or Poland uh, very right. much. Um, uh, what is still at play is a broader discursive structure that we are, that we talked about last week, about something that is novel, a polity that is novel and that I can't relate to. And that makes up those uh, kind of uh, distinctions and prejudices, uh, etc. And so I think we were dealing with, in a sense, a strange confluence of two different myths. So there is the, the continuing uh, myth um, of uh, this liberal bureaucracy that threatens our national identities, etc. But at the same time, uh, there is also an equally difficult and, and problematic myth of Europe as a kind of space of civilization that I... Um, identify with. And these two myths are being brought together by saying that the way that Europe is developing is actually uh, going against what Europe should be. So, so, so the one myth works against uh, the, the other. Um, now the myth of Europe as a civilization is a, a very strong one. Um, and like all myths uh, that which we discussed last last week, uh, is a is a myth that is actually has had its grounding in in historical fact. Mm. Um, I, I heard a very interesting uh, talk at the, at the conference, uh, virtual conference, of course, uh, <laughs> uh, yesterday uh, of a Dutch colleague, a historian, talking about these things. Uh, demonstrating how uh, intellectuals, for instance, at the same time as the nation state was being formed and people were talking about national identities against all the other identities, at the same time, um, they traveled and were in correspondence, of course, with um, like-minded people all across a space that we might nowadays describe as Europe. Um, mm. uh, and uh, and so, so there is, of course, some truth that certain ideas at a certain historical moment arose or were debated within particular circles um, that, that match uh, the kind of Europe. At the same time, of course, we need to perhaps bear in mind that very different uh, historical uh, uh, developments and ideas are being put together in this myth of Europe. I mean, that's another thing that, that is typical of myths, that, they, that the people who articulate those myths, they bring together a whole range of things that, that are actually contradicting themselves, and then they emerge as a, as a, as a whole. And in the, in the case of, um, of the narration of the European myths, very often it is, of course, uh, civilizational progress together with uh, Christianity, or what I prefer to call Christendom, um, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and enlightenment. Um, but of course, you know, you could make arguments about um, how perhaps um, certain strands of Christian beliefs may have favored enlightenment, um, but you could also say that enlightenment was in the first instance, a rejection uh, of any religion at all. So the fact that this is thought together um, today, um, 
um, means firstly that uh, that people bring together very different strands that are contradictory in a myth and at the same time of course um, that you can it, it acts as a kind of um, social theorists uh, Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe would have called this an empty signifier you bring together very different things under the heading of Europe. Europe becomes an identification point, but of course in the articulation of uh, Europe, people stress very, very different things. Um, and so what is stressed today as the identity of Europe um, in mainstream Germany is very different to what those who oppose uh, this vision within Germany um, is, you know, is seen as Europe and is opposed to those that uh, to, to opposed to those visions of Europe that you find among the supporters uh, of Orban, um, or peace, or, or any other um, of those um, political movements. Speaking of contradictions. Um, when we look at the region, on the one hand side, as you mentioned, there is a lot of myth and also criticism towards the European integration process and the structures. At the same time, there's a lot of benefits coming from these structures. So the cohesion funds, of course, the, the access to the, to the single market, all these populist agendas and, and, and parties and also actors would have the possibility to leave the European Union in a heartbeat, but they're not doing it. So they're criticizing and benefiting at the same time, where I don't want to claim that you cannot benefit from something and you're then not allowed to criticize, by all means not. But um, how does this go together to heavily undermine on the one hand side, especially when we look now at the negotiations, about the new multi-annual financial framework on the one hand side and on the other hand side largely benefiting from being a member of the EU and receiving additional funding that is made available by the community. People don't necessarily bring together things uh, that run in parallel um, and financial streams um, have to do with uh, partly technocratic um, procedures that uh, people do not tie up necessarily uh, with things that they consider to be matters of the heart and matters of their identity. I used to live in Birmingham in the UK. The Midlands, of which Birmingham is part, uh, were a region that benefited heavily from uh, EU structural funds. You went through Birmingham and on every other public building, you saw the European Union flag and uh, mm -hmm. inscription. Uh, this project was partly sponsored, etc., by the European Union. And yet at the same time, in questions of Brexit, this area in large parts um, was uh, in favor of Brexit. How do you bring this together? I have no idea, to be <laughs> quite frank. Um, but I think it has to do with uh, not tying the dots, so not making connections between uh, those two things. It is partly a question of um, how far you want to go. So it seems that, for instance, among the Brexiteers, there were lots of people who um, were understanding that economically this may be difficult, but to regain sovereignty, or shall we say, to regain the illusion of sovereignty uh, was the priority. And 
in order to regain the illusion or the myth, shall we say, of sovereignty, they were prepared to pay a high cost. Mm. Now, obviously, that is not what many of the governments, um, the populist governments in parts of Central and Eastern Europe are willing to do. And there we go back to the problem of the empty signifier because the empty signifier works and has worked as a unifying element as long as the contestation over the real meaning of Europe can somehow be overarched and you know how that long as these different expressions uh, of Europe can be held in a sort of equation to each other. There is a danger, of course, that we are now at a struggle over the real heart of what Europe is that would undermine that empty signifier and therefore would undermine the possibility of referring to Europe uh, acting as a, a kind of a mantle under which these different positions can find themselves. And in at least some of the articulations of some of these uh, politicians, including Viktor Orban, um, there is the idea that Europe stands for this uh, rather religious exclusive identity and not so much uh, parts of the other identities, including elements of enlightenment and so on. I don't want to make a judgment, um, although you can hear that I have some doubts whether this is the real concern of these people or whether this is simply what they are saying on a rhetorical level. Um, but it serves, of course, to give people on the ground who are lost in this world, which they don't understand anymore, uh, this ontological security that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is what uh, we see here. And in those kind of instances, you are perfectly happy to take on the money because you are fighting for the real Europe or you're pretending to fight for the real Europe. Right. Uh, why should you leave? It's the others that are wrong. The others should change. The others should fences against uh, migrants. The others should defend uh, European values against uh, uh, Islamic values, etc. So, th so I think that in, in that sense, uh, the populism uh, that steered Brexit and the populism you find in animating some of the other um, uh, cases that we've been talking about uh, is slightly different. Uh, in the Brexit case, you were willing to give up on Europe because you didn't have mm -hmm. a kind of radical alternative in the case of uh, Hungary. Um, why should you give up on Europe? You're the real Europe. That's a very interesting point and probably a discussion for a whole other episode um, that we could do within the podcast. But summing up uh, of what we have talked over the course of these two um, episodes that we have been uh, talking with each other, I would want to ask the final question, is it necessary that we deconstruct certain myths within the European Union? And if yes, how can we do that? Or would it even be something to counteract by creating certain positive myths for European integration? What, what, is, what are the tasks ahead? What is the future going to look like? If I have an answer to this, I will call Ursula von der Leyen and I expect <laughs> uh, to be sitting uh, uh, advising her very soon. Um, 
Uh, this is a problem that um, I think uh, many social scientists uh, and uh, political thinkers have been thinking about ever since the advent of modernity and the resistances to modernity. Um, and I don't think they have found a particular good uh, solution uh, to this. I don't think, to be honest with you, that the search for an alternative myth, for instance, that would be a positive myth of Europe, mm -hmm. uh, that this will ultimately work. It will not work um, because of the dispersed nature of communication these days. Uh, it was much easier to install such a myth in uh, the epoch of romanticism um, under certain conditions of uh, the possibilities to communicate. And also, frankly speaking, under certain conditions of hierarchy. I mean, partly these things were imposed on people. Uh, and people then eventually simply accepted them. Uh, I live in a place called uh, uh, Rottenburg. Um, Rottenburg until the early 19th century was actually Austrian. Um, and, you know, people always say, of course, the German speaking people went together and so on. But of course, you know, my God, were there conflicts between the place where I live, uh, Rottenburg, and uh, the place where I teach 10 kilometers away called Tübingen. Um, so so to, 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 to argue that there was a sort of bottom up, sort of we are all one kind of movement, the history didn't quite work uh, uh, that way. And so I don't think that we do have a context in which A, there is a good grounding on establishing a single alternative myth that would sort of allow an alternative identification with Europe. Nor do I think that we would want to go the way in which ultimately the European nation states were consolidated, namely through the Napoleonic Wars and various wars even after that, mm. uh, for that matter. So I wouldn't necessarily want to, to suggest that we ought to uh, go to war with um, uh, some member states uh, just because they don't agree with what I would call Europe. So my, so my alternative uh, proposal uh, uh, is that we should continue to tell people that what they believe in terms of the nation state is also a myth. And that a lot of these charges leveled at the EU are charges not specific uh, to the EU, but are actually, um, are actually symptoms uh, of our current age, of the current uh, times that we live in, are aspects of modernity as such, uh, which the nation state suffers from in the same way. And in that sense, we should stop thinking that uh, everything that is problematic in the EU is at the same time making the whole project an illegitimate project, because we wouldn't say the same about the nation state. I don't think I don't think this is the panacea to all problems of uh, democracy in Europe, but I personally uh, think that it may be more fruitful to constantly remind people of this common problem that we face in modern polities, rather than now doing what has been tried before, uh, and that is to foster one single uh, European identity by providing a myth that people can believe in. I don't think that'll work. Thank you very much, Thomas. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. I think we have learned really a lot about the role of myth and also the role that these play in our region. This was CEE Central Europe Explained European Union and Popular Myth, 
an IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group. We are looking forward to the next episode. And thank you very much, Thomas, again, for your time and your very valuable insights. Thank you very much, Sebastian, for the invitation and good luck. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.